0: the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is how okay. can okay. the whole state of things in view of violence without object. This is the typical violence of Violent, because what happens there is a the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding
1: here.
2: Welcome to Machine to Conscious Happier with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guests, we just want to mention we've got a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Times are hard. If you can, throw us a buck a month. If not, you know, it would be great if you could leave us a nice review on iTunes in lieu of that. But today, Taylor and I will be bringing you all a conversation with Samu uh, Tomcic. Samo holds a Ph.D. in philosophy and is currently interim professor of philosophy at the University of Fine Arts, Hamburg, as well as a researcher at the Interdisciplinary Laboratory Matters of Activity at the Humboldt University, Berlin. His research areas comprise contemporary European philosophy, structuralism, post-structuralism, psychoanalysis, epistemology, and political philosophy. Some of his most recent works are The Capitalist Unconscious, published in 2015, and The Labor of Enjoyment 2018, which will be the focus of our discussion today. Before we get started, just a real quick shout out to uh, Sigmund Freud.
0: I will say two things. One, Cooper has enjoyed, again, a problematic term. Uh, <laughs> he's enjoyed reading Freud more and more that we talk about him. And and two, just to make sure that I understand this, and Coop, you can cut this out or you can chastise me. Is it pronounced Tom Sheech? Is that how you pronounce it? Or
1: That's exactly how you pronounce Tom-she- it. Okay.
0: We want to get that right. Uh, I know that you know we're. Um, this is why it's important to have the diacritics in the <laughs> in the documents.
1: Thank you for having me here today. It's really, really great pleasure.
2: You know, as we were mentioning in the, you know, in the kind of warm up notes, you know, Taylor mentioned we just looked at Freud's three essays. But before that, the week before that, we actually wrapped <laughs> up our journey through Anti-Oedipus chapter four. Those two weeks back to back, before talking to you, were like perfectly. Um, we're perfectly ready for this conversation. I think libidinal economics is definitely fresh in our minds. So we're very excited to dive into your work today. I guess it's serendipity too, because
0: since I had to reschedule when we had to reschedule everything, you know, you were, you were supposed to come on before those two and it kind of worked out. I think <laughs> yeah. better that we got to right. go through those and then have you on. So I do want to Apologize first of all for for making a reschedule and thank you for being generous your oh. time and we're, we're so happy to have you on today.
1: No worries. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's also as as you said uh, retrospectively, it's uh, it's better that we rescheduled.
0: It's the destiny of the uh, of the drive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: we need to call our god logos, as Freud would put it.
0: <laughs> I do want to give you the chance, Sam, to just maybe tell us a little bit about your. Any memories or thoughts or stories you have about how you maybe fell into this investigative theoretical aspect, uh, whether it be into psychoanalysis or philosophy in general, the humanities? Do you have anything to share concerning like your origin story so we can better understand what made you the the writer and thinker you are today?
1: The origin story. So you want me to invent a myth? Yes, yes, please. That's right.
2: Fill in the (laughs) gaps.
1: (laughs) The heavy. It's a heavy task now but um I started studying philosophy in the late 90s in Ljubljana so basically I grew up I grew up in a very provincial very you know deindustrialized poor region in Slovenia in the north bordering Austria yeah how to put it I mean I guess uh, and this is where the myth comes in, you know. There's there's this kind of uh, experience of uh, you know rural alienation right. uh, rather than rural rootedness. <laughs> you know, as Heidegger would put it. So I, I had the, the exact opposite, the exact opposite experience. But maybe you know, since Heidegger was uh, was living in the Black Forest region, which is uh, fairly well economically situated compared to <laughs> compared to where I grew up in. Or maybe it was just too close to the mountains. You know, in German, you have this, this word that Heidegger uses, entbergen and verbergen uh, of being, you know, unveiling and re- and hiding, or yeah, revealing and hiding. Right. It's, this ontological for the dark game of, of being, it contains berg. It contains the same root as the word for mountains. Okay, Bergen. great. So, you know, we could also think about that entbergen and verbergen. It's just like you know Heidegger observing the the Alps how they mm. you know are being hidden from hidden by the clouds and then they emerge when the sky clears and so on and so forth. But I mean joke aside, I basically always wanted to run away from uh, from the the place where I grew up with grew up in. Well, always since my consciousness can recall you know there's no Oedipal background here I, uh, <laughs> I i have very nice very close relation very good relation uh, uh, with my parents so there mm-hmm. there was no parental antagonism or whatever you know it was just uh, it was just a place i never saw myself in I, I i felt dislocated and i think this dislocation you know is also in a way uh, something that defines philosophy since uh, since the very beginnings, and something that defines it, define continues to define it in the in the present. And uh, I, I kind of, when I hit puberty, I, <laughs> I kind of, come up with the idea that studying philosophy is the thing to do. I had no idea about about Lacan at that point. Uh, that happened when I started studying. I actually didn't mention Heidegger. By chance, because that was my first okay. Philosophical, okay. philosophical passion. I mean, I've read Nietzsche before, but I guess every adolescent reads Nietzsche if they're interested in uh, in philosophy. Oh. So it's the re- the rebels, you know, whatever excess. But uh, it was actually Heidegger that was the first philosopher that really really interested me, and then this name Lacan constantly popped up, you know. Right with other students, and I was at point, but some point, okay, I have to I have to have a look at this, and uh, so I bought the Slovenian translation of the four fundamental concepts of psychoanalysis, nice. and I still remember the outrage, the irritation, you know, when I started reading this, and I was like, I don't understand the bloody thing about yes. this, <laughs> why is everyone so into uh, into it, and I mean, everyone, not really everyone but uh, you know why is this why is this proper name so so invested with whatever aura so then i then i yeah quickly figured out that if you want to understand this gibberish you have to read something else you right right for starts so Sir Jacobson, so i got Increasingly entangled in this the signifying chain, just like
2: wrapping its signifying chain, wrapping itself around your around you. Well, your I
1: network. mean, you right know right what, <laughs> what I always found very interesting in Lacan is that that he basically a system of connections, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, basically this is some this is something that very very much uh, attracted me in his opaqueness. Freud is as well, but but Freud is a very is a very clear and he's clear. clear modest thinker <laughs> correct
0: yeah uh, right <laughs> oh yeah uh continue if you if you feel like it but well, we can we no can i think i think origin, i think okay. the
1: origin has been invented <laughs> got you, got you.
0: i mean part of this is so interesting that you would go from you know your uh one of your first passions as you call it from heidegger to lacan and it's it's lacan is the one that's clear and uh, not clear i i find it interesting to to think of how many times trying to slog through being in time and thinking, <laughs> like, I'm not sure. Um, although for me, it's, it's always Hegel. That's, that's the, that recipe for wondering what is going on and wanting to throw a book is Hegel mm-hmm. and Lacan. And I would say uh, just to add, I'm curious about your reflection. One of the things that your friend, Alenka Zupancic said was there was in Ljubljana, there was, there was some kind of, there was something spirit of the time. There was something in the, in the air, so to speak of this, conjunction of psychoanalysis and philosophy do you feel that's part of what you were referring to with Lacan's name being circulated yeah. in class?
1: Absolutely I think this was kind of the constant background you know that that also determined a certain standard of doing philosophy in, in Slovenia even though of course I must uh, I must add that uh, the department where I studied so mm-hmm. in, in Ljubljana the University of Ljubljana was uh, I mean, Lacanians were were very marginal. Okay, uh, a very marginal group. I mean, Mladen Dolar right. was, was still teaching at that point. And then my future supervisor Yelica Shumic and uh, her husband Rado Rija, were visiting, or kind of yeah, visiting lectures or visiting professors for ethics at the department. But they had to be re-invited every year so at some point they right cut them off and they they are they were working primarily at the institute of philosophy at the scientific research center where alenka is also uh, gotcha working that was pretty much it you know from the lacanian camp analytic philosophy was very strong but it wasn't the only uh the only there i mean the the Heideggerian camp was also uh, was o- also quite strong, but uh, that's something that uh, very quickly also drew, drew me away from uh, Heideggerianism because uh, all Heidegarians in Slovenia are well, what one would expect from Heidegger- a consequent Heideggerian to be right wing. I got you,
0: uh, Yeah, you know,
1: this, this kind of uh, blood and soil ideology <laughs> and, so on and so forth and. Uh, Interesting. Um, this discourse on authenticity rootedness and blah 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 so they actually were involved also in the independence movement in the 80s they were the true uh, you know like this kind of uh, schoolbook type of dissidents and uh, they were also sort of involved in uh, writing the the constitution, or at least you know there was gotcha. writers in the constitution at some point, and then uh, uh, some of them were also involved in the in the actual the first government and the the first attempts or the first steps legal steps towards uh, independence. But yeah, they they're all peculiar brand of nationalists.
0: Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense
1: whereas lacanians were always very consistently left and that was pretty much the first thing that uh, you got communicated as a as a student okay this is if you want to you know like do left uh, uh, wing philosophy this is where you this is where you you're heading you know they were not indoctrinating in quotation marks you know it was not that you had to do lacan in order to be you know part of the uh, right part of this gang or whatever you want to call it, they were actually introducing contemporary thinkers or contemporary philosophers into Slovenian context. So they would be, you know, they would make sure that, I mean, they made the first translations of uh, Lyotard, of Badiou, of Aroncier, and so on and so forth. So they were actually translating and commenting and teaching the entire you know, system of so-called French theory or contemporary French. Uh, of course, Lacan was kind of the, the main common denominator for all of them, but uh, they were actually, you know, opening a much broader field for us students.
0: I think that's great to add that context. And before sort of diving into the book, because there's plenty to talk about, I'll already anticipate and think about, you know, one of your opening chapters where, Not to paraphrase everything, but you bring in a kind of interesting view, look at Aristotle, which will keep with us through the book. And just to, uh, in my head, the way I paraphrase it is Aristotle's has a kind of, you know, for him, this, this height of of philosophy culminates in a kind of logic where there is a stability in language and it's anchored in say, God, maybe what Heidegger might call onto theology. And it's interesting now thinking about it, you don't really discuss Heidegger. Do you think that that first love, do you think Heidegger skirts the line between Aristotle and, and someone like Lacan who might be more of a sophist in Aristotle's language where there is this instability in, whether it be language, the symbolic, the bodily, uh, borders hmm. of the drive is Heidegger still more of an Aristotelian in this sense in in participating in this uh ideal of say you know being and, and speaking or is there some is there kind of a slippage too that that would lead you to you know to someone like Freud Lacan who is going to destabilize this this homeostasis that you describe
1: I think Heidegger definitely is a discontinuity I mean okay. I I can only re- refer to, to Barbara Cassan's uh, mm-hmm. work on this whole issue of the language of being, which was very formative for me as well. And um, Heidegger is an Aristotelian, in quotation marks, in uh, the right. sense that he still has this uh, central idea of a privileged language of being. Right. Uh, language in which being itself comes to speak. You know, right. this is also why, I mean, I kind of like, you know, this uh, uh, very banal sounding, but still interesting, interesting remark, you know, that the language speaks, you know, mm-hmm. the word words or whatever. I mean, what could do right. one can nothing, do, uh, Out of Heidegger, of course, yeah. but die Sprache spricht in German, it, it's uh, very clear, you know, that it's. Uh, a repetition on a tautology, you know, right, that, is, right. that is involved in this Heideggerian remark. But you know, language speaks. So he kind of, you know, focuses on the autonomy of language. Uh, right. Aristotle, of course, there is no there is no autonomy of language because language is considered as a, as an organ, as an organ and a tool. It's considered pragmatic through the the lenses of pragmatics. Of course, and here Barbara Cassin comes in. I I very much like her critique of Aristotelianism as uh, this kind of uh, forceful normalization, disciplining of language, disciplining (sighs) of speaking. But there is something like, you know, a, a decision at the beginning of Aristotle's philosophy, a decision that we do not find at the beginning of Plato's philosophy. Because Plato, Plato is way more ambiguous when it comes to to the figure of the sophist, and when it comes to also you know, his philosophy of language is still kind of uh, pre-epistemological uh, yeah. because it contains a lot of myth. If we take his uh, dialogue *Cratylus*, where he has this speculation about uh, the origin of words and the origin of sounds or you know linguistic sounds and. Right and letters of the Greek alphabet. And uh, he has this idea that they are basically imitating natural qualities. Mm-hmm. So there is there is this kind of uh, mythical continuum between the qualities of matter or physics and linguistics. Uh, gotcha. uh, the signifier, you know, is basically an imitation of natural sounds. It's a crazy idea. And Lacan says in Encore that this is a completely hopeless theory, you know, it has something something excessive you know because yeah he's he's basically also speaking about the language of being or the language of physics uh, the language of nature the language of phys- physicality or the language of matter it has something very disorienting alienating even you know uh, Specifically for Aristotelianism and for the right. Aristotelian normativism, it has something extremely alienating at it. Um, whereas, yeah, for Aristotle, logics is supposed to order thinking. It's a, yes. it's a grammar of thought, and it's also in a way a grammar of being. You know, right. and here again, Barbara Cassin with his uh, with her thesis, you know, that at the beginning there there has to be a decision comes in uh, uh, that. Basically, this decision is a gesture of of the master, the gesture of the master ontologist, as Lacan would would also put it. You know, that's Aristotle. I guess Heidegger Heidegger is you know making the opposites the opposite uh, decision. Oh. He decides for poetic language as the privileged language of being, which mm-hmm. being unveils uh, itself, but at the same time i mean yeah there's uh, there there's this, still this centrality of the sense of being the sen- senseful rather than senseless character of being i mean i always thought that lacan's critique of uh, of philosophy and of ontology in particular mm-hmm. the ground discipline uh, of classical philosophy this critique that uh, being is an effect of discourse, which you know kind of resonates with this entire theory of linguistic performativity and so on and so forth, is not to be taken, you know, in this naive, superficial sense uh, that, yes, language kind of with its uh, activity creates this effect that is the effect of being or the effect of existence or the effect of presence, but that uh, that what philosophy, Overlooks is not that language is that being is the effect of language, this is something that Heidegger said, you know, in a way, but that being is the enjoyment that is specific for philosophy. So that the philosophical name for enjoyment that is generated through discourse in and through discourse is being, and that ultimately, that ultimately we can understand a specific form of philosophy that is. Aristotelianism, but also you know, Heideggerianism, as a way of mystifying the true materiality of linguistic product or discursive production, and also mystifying that philosophy, in a way, always ends up being involved or producing some sort of exploitative, dominating relation with regard to what is. It's never about, you know, describing what is, but as Aristotle says, it's not, it's not to on, but toti and what has to be. This is also, you know, one thing that Lacan, again in Encore, draws attention to that basically Aristotle's main interest is to determine how things got to be in terms of imperative, in terms of duty, you have, you have to be. Like this and that. This is where this entire yeah equation uh, of philosophy with the master's discourse uh, uh, then, then follows. And I mean, this is also one huge, complicate, complicated topic because, uh, of course, the master's discourse is a discourse of domination. But mm-hmm. I think we shouldn't be seduced by this term master too much, you know, because I think Lacan is aiming also at a very basic feature of language when he uses this term, which concerns, you know, just establishing some sort of connectivity and consistency and bond or network of signifiers, to put it in the abstract, so that, that, that there is something that holds together. But of course, I mean, as it's always the case with Lacan, he also kind of tries to draw our attention to the fact that producing such consistent linguistic consistence or symbolic consistencies always remains open to the risk of establishing a regime of domination, of mastery, in the very literal sense, <laughs>
0: sense of the word. There's so many places we could, we could go there, but I really like that you brought up the master's uh, discourse there and and related it to philosophy, because I do think that there is this perhaps this oscillation between philosophy being either sort of reinvigorating the master's discourse or sometimes falling into with like analytic philosophy into the, the university discourse and perhaps falling behind, you know, knowledge as the objective regime that can then under the scene, hide power. But I, you know, instead of necessarily going through that, because I think this is a good way to open up into your book, I wanted to merely say one thing that was almost a, you know, an afterthought or an aside, but it's, that's always some of the most interesting parts of a book and of a a chain of of thinking. And then we can look at some of the notes that, that Coop has and keep us going. One of the things, because we were talking about Aristotle was you offhand mentioned that to a certain extent, Stalin was an extreme Aristotelian. And this was something that really made me, I'll say I enjoyed it, right? Just to, again, on what we're talking about. But what, the, what was interesting was how you were describing the difference between Plato and Aristotle and how there's something alienating for a, an Aristotelian. And this might come as I think counterintuitive to someone who hasn't read your book. But the I think that that's the kernel of truth there is precisely in this idea that Stalin was an extreme Aristotelian, insofar as Stalinism participated in this fantasy, if you will, of de-alienating or of the imperative of de or disalienating individuals and in the society in which the Soviet bloc existed. And I just uh-huh. wanted to maybe, I don't really have a question there, but do you want to say a word about because some of the most powerful passages in the middle of your book is concerning this question of. What happens to alienation in whether it be, you know, actually existing communism, say in the in the future or in the totalitarian regime that I was just describing and how that's part of this. Um, I can call it a fantasy. I, I can't think of a maybe ideology, but uh, just anything that you feel like responding to there, if, if that gave you something to maybe, maybe just what you what you think you, you meant by the extreme Aristotelianism of of Stalin.
1: I mean that's that's more linked to you know his uh, his intervention in this in the linguistic debates in in Soviet Union in the in the late 40s gotcha. or around 50, 1950 so shortly before his death and you know the problem of Marism, the idea of uh, language being a superstructure that would then imply if language is a superstructure this means that a communist revolution has to invent a new language and of course. It didn't, and also I mean this was this was an intervention that also Lacan uh, Lacan then uh, kind of referred to in I think his uh, instance of the letter mm. writing and also in the seminar I mean mentioning mentioning Stalin always with a pinch of irony. You know, that uh, at some point Stalin had to intervene in this linguistic mess or the, this this polemics by ordering that language was not a superstructure. Stalin basically doesn't say that language is the base either. So he has a very peculiar, uh, I mean peculiar, interesting, interestingly careful position, even though the texts that he wrote for Prauda, which addressed him with the, you know, this party newspaper, addressed him with these questions about Marism and what he thinks about linguistic matters and so on and so forth. And ultimately, I mean, there is there is this assumption, you know, probably well grounded, that it was actually Bakhtin that wrote the text, and the, Stalin just gave the, Stalin just gave the yes and no answers. You know, I, I can imagine this. You know how how you know you have to find the you have to find the bureaucrat who will basically invent or you know like provide the scientific grounding for Stalin's niet und da. You know, is language a superstructure yet? Is language a base yet? You know, it's uh, and, and now deal with it. But you know, joke aside. If you look at these interventions that bear Stalin's name, so in the end he did put his his name under under these developments. So it doesn't really matter whether it was ghost written or uh, or not. It is Stalin's official position you know sanctioned approved by stalin and it was also it was also you know kind of again a pragmatic uh, a pragmatic stance which was supposed to you know also go in the direction of some sort of multi you know soviet multilingualism and uh, uh, you know kind of acknowledging the uh, you know national rights uh, and the composition of the entire you know the multination uh, character of Soviet of Soviet Union so it's it's again a different a different direction that maybe doesn't you know doesn't really uh, respond to uh, to uh, to the question of Aristotelianism but Aristotelianism in Stalin is you know it's just maybe i use this as a sort of a provocation that he was a radical uh, Aristotelianism if if you read this uh, this text he has a very Aristotelian views of language you know right language is a tool of communication of expression of inner thoughts and feelings and uh, uh, and needs and so on and so forth so, so there is nothing there's absolutely nothing interesting about about Stalin's in quotation mark conception of language but um, he does have some interesting uh, or the text this intervention has some some interest interesting points and one is the already this entire neither base nor superstructure uh, issue, which could be unfolded, unpacked, and you know brought into into an interesting direction that doesn't interest Stalin. And the other one is uh, this kind of criticism of grammar as uh, being too abstract, too immaterial, which is also, I mean, a fair criticism that uh, grammar is something like a Euclidean geometry, mm-hmm. uh, for which Lacan said that it consists of pure ghosts. And what he was interested in is, you know, a, a geometry that has a body. You know, that's what he said when, when he was obsessing with uh, Borromean knots and, uh, mm-hmm. and on and so forth. But, uh, you know, again, to go back to Stalin, sorry for jumping back and forth. Like no, that. it's fine. He doesn't really provide a proper materialist philosophy of language and this in this intervention even though he criticizes grammar as abstract and you know kind of uh, distanced from the living materiality and plurality and flux if you want of of uh, actually existing natural uh, languages but at the same time you know he does pursue a certain a certain linguistic nationalism if you uh, if you like or <laughs> linguistic internationalism, but still under a very clear agenda of his own his own understanding of dialectical materialism, which is for for Stalin a naturalism. You know, it's it's again there. There's absolutely nothing dialectical nor materialist in his understanding of dialectical materialism.
0: I think that's great, and I think it, it connects with where as Kup has here, it's sort of this going into your book, this idea of repression as the foundation of politics. And I just want to maybe clarify why I brought up Stalin was insofar as you write how with the October Revolution and and uh, and sort of Stalinism afterward, it's this criminalization of capitalistic alienation, which also entails a kind of criminalization of what Lacan might call castration, linguistic alienation, and how instead of this fantasy of doing away with alienation, which yeah. you point to as being Merely a fantasy and being almost the fantasy par excellence of neoliberalism, etc. Marx and Freud instead mobilize alienation in order to work through, as you keep reiterating throughout the book, which Mm -hmm. I think is great that it's refrained, to work through sort of the, you know, let's say, transformation on the social and and subjective level uh, level through through work through labor through working through so i like this idea that in fact alienation it seems like a merely i think intuitively it seems like a merely negative but it's by mobilizing that negativity of alienation that can allow for a motor if you will for working through
2: of
1: course and uh, i think you know that well, you know, some some people don't buy into this homology between Marx and and Freud at all. Some want to see it in a just uh, kind of restricted, to a restricted, in a restricted manner. And um, yeah, I I guess I'm I'm kind of uh, among those who, who are running wild with it, and yes. uh, can't stop seeing it. So you know, this is uh, this is just um, you know doesn't doesn't have to be doesn't have to be bought it's it's a very biased reading and I think there are only biased readings right. in philosophy or in humanities you no know, one once you encounter a thought that irritates or inspires you or whatever uh, you know you have to take a stance so about Marx and Freud I think I think they're common objective is to if we talk about libidinal economy you know and how subjects are structured in this in this weird machinery that that is uh, yeah the discourse of enjoyment so libidinal economy they provide us the subjects of contemporary libidinal economy a new object which is change that's for me the main the main point of encounter change away from this you know, consuming, monstrous, antisocial system that's the capitalist mode of production. And uh, working through the way Freud writes and thinks about it is precisely transformative labor, which is working precisely on my embedding, embeddedness, entanglement with or in the social structure which conditions my illness or whatever you want to uh, call it. So, in a way, psychoanalysis does pursue a certain type of social change in quotation mark, but of course not the same type of social change as Marx's mature project of critique of political economy and the internationalist horizon that that he envisages in his notion of or his conception of communism and uh, and so on and so forth. There is of course a different type of sociality uh, that is addressed or sociality is addressed from a different angle from the angle of already formed masses and other yeah political structures like the state and so on and so forth but it's still on on this kind of very general very abstract level it is social change in the strong sense of the word social that is targeted and you know social as distinct from antisocial which is what we are dealing with in the present well in the present moment or in the history of capitalism it's mm-hmm. just a mode of production that organizes anti-sociality and enforces anti-sociality production for the sake of production for instance that's a very that's marx's name for the anti-social core of capitalist organization of production and of labor to come finally to this issue of alienation i mean it's also some so much is already in words themselves you know in 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 German words, because German language has a much more diversified and precise precise vocabulary for what, you know, it's commonly packed under this umbrella of alienation in English. And, of course, in English, you also have different words for this. So, estrangement, mm-hmm. uh, yep. externalization, you know, mm-hmm. veräusserung. And uh, Veräußerung. It doesn't have this drama yet, you know, uh, of of alienation, of, you know, loss of the self or, uh, I don't know, expropriation Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. So it doesn't it doesn't have that. It actually describes a dynamic, an activity that defines human subjectivity. Mm -hmm. That's why why I like, you know, going back to Hegel and his, uh, you know, reflections on work and language uh, or uh, the activity of speech in phenomenology of spirit where he basically says these are the two main processes in which not only something inner gets externalized like for instance i have an idea and then i am finding the right words to express it or i have an idea and then i find the right means to produce a product um it's actually in this pro- in this activity, in this productive activity, the difference between the inner and the outer gets established. Right. It means. I mean, of course, we can read it superficially by saying something inner gets uh, gets externalized and then stands opposite to me as you know alienated. But we can also say, in good old structuralist manner. The relation is primarily uh, is primary and the inner and the outer are produced through this relation or more precisely through this activity. Because the point of structuralism is not only that that it talks about some abstract, rigid relations, but precisely about unstable, active relations, active materiality. I mean, the symbolic is active matter in a way mm-hmm. but, for structuralism. I think, yeah, this is why I'm kind of insisting, you know, on not positive reading of alienation, but of to use another key psychoanalytic or Freudian, Freudian term on the ambivalence of alienation, that you know you can't, as a subject of activities such as labor and, sp- and language and so on, you never you never end, you never come to terms with, with these activities which means that you know this kind of interplay between inner and outer or you know this kind of interpenetration of externality through the interior and internality or interior and exterior never never comes to an end this is how language functions this is how we subjectivize i mean i would even perhaps say that alienation means for me as much as subjectivation and of course there are subjectivations that are subjections and this is, this is where alienation turns into an exploitative condition. That's why I prefer to, you know, kind of speak about uh, capitalism as the most refined system for exploiting alienation. And of course, also enforcing ever new forms of exploitable alienations. Right. But at the same time, I mean, there's nothing more exploitative than a regime that commands disalienation, you know. I mean, this is where neoliberalism, the you referenced, also, also comes in. I mean, the, the idea of homo economicus, which is now ideologically dead since 2008 at the latest, it doesn't have any ideological ethic uh, efficiency. But, you know, this is, this is an example of this assumption of a non-alienated subjectivity, which, you know, is kind of coinciding with, this kind of individual greed and private interest as smith would call it there's no split there's no yeah no division no negativity it's just you know we are we are greedy individuals involved in mutual seduction that's something that i kind of like in adam smith's uh, scenario you know the famous, you know, the brewer and the butcher. Why do we address them? Not to convince them to take our interests into account, but look at their benefits. So right. we are playing, pushing the button of their own greed. Yes. To establish a social, a social bond or a relational yeah. exchange, which is pre- pretty much the same uh, in this case. I mean, we could see that this, how this functions in in practice. I mean. it's one cannot ever fully actualize uh, fully actualize homo economicus and the point of this theory of human subjectivity was not to actualize it but to you know enforce it socially as a non actualizable non realizable ideal which generates precisely more alienation and uh, for certain perhaps we could also say it makes alienation desirable as a side note, I'm also kind of, you know, sympathetic towards Deleuze and Guattari here. And I think they really need to be saved from all the accelerationist and other delusional misreadings, which, you know, basically claim that the anti-Oedipus is about, you know, desiring more more alienation. And that more alienation will kind of uh, set us free or whatever. You know, the point is neither is this their political point at least I don't see it. Uh, right. I don't yeah. know, maybe, I, maybe I didn't read anti and mil Plateau too, uh, too precisely, but I, I never saw this in, in Deleuze and Guattari, a desire for more alienation. Nor, I think, one one should uh, or one could legitimately make such a reproach to Lacanian theory or to Lacan himself, right. or to Freud for that matter. Right, Alienation is, is the solution. The, right. the way out of uh, of capitalism? No, it's not. It, it's not. It's. I mean, it's a way out of out of. I mean, it doesn't lead anywhere except to redefining relations of uh, relations of exploitation. Mm-hmm. Maybe just one one last sentence regard, with regard to communist politics. I mean, of course, it's about going against the capitalist forms of alienation, but one could also say that. Communism as a regime of, as the name says, a system of commons, a system mm-hmm. of, uh, of the communal, of sociality, is also about a specific type of alienation, which for me would be precisely solidarity. I think we cannot be sol- solidary, like really solidary with an emancipatory struggle or engage in an emancipatory struggle if we do not precisely, precisely embrace to put it some somewhat pathetically some sort of shared negativity mm-hmm. negativity that we share with other political subjectivities and other other identities or other historical identities and struggles for for emancipation there is no how to put it only alienation is a sincere form of solidarity I would say you know when when a struggle really, Really takes the the ground from our feet.
0: I was thinking about the pun you made about um, you know the delusional aspects of accelerationism because I w- we were thinking about Deleuze and that, that made me chuckle. But I do think that what Koop has here connects with your line of thought that you were you were just bringing out specifically with respect to exploitation and enjoyment, etc. And so I do want to let give koop a chance to maybe um, keep us keep us going here. I really like the way that you engage
2: with uh, the concept of the death drive in the book. Part of that, I think, is perhaps this counterplay or like these two sort of opposing forces on the subject, perhaps you might characterize it. So I'm thinking about you talk about resistance and repression, and I'm thinking about how those sort of they kind of keep the subject on the sort of orbital path of the drive. Does that kind of fit with what you were with kind of your conception or i don't i don't know if you maybe want to talk a little bit about repression and resistance maybe just a quick gloss on on those and and then maybe if my connection to the death drive makes sense i didn't
1: quite get the jump to uh to the death drive if you can uh, sure uh...
2: well i was just thinking about these twin like maybe i should just back up and have you just kind of gloss a little bit i think in particular for me i'm not very clear on what resistance is that's kind of slipping my mind repression I think I have a little bit better of an understanding but yeah, maybe we yeah. could start there and then I could you know pick up
1: yeah well I mean resistance is quite a it's quite an interesting quite an interesting Freudian concept and problem really clinical and epistemological problem. And I think this is also where Freud gets most political when he talks about, about resistance, resistance against psychoanalysis, re- resistance against the new, and so on and so forth. Whereby, you know, I mean, as a side, uh, side remark, when I said that, I think what Marx and Freud are trying to kind of spark in the subject is a desire for for change. So change and the new, you know, are two signifiers that are also quite kind of, I mean, they're fuzzy, they're, they're opaque. Behind them is a very simple idea of a non-exploitative social, social bond or social sociality. One could very easily say, oh, yeah, but, you know, capitalism is also about, uh, you know, change and and the new and blah, blah, blah all the time. But it's not really. It's not really. You know, the, the, the only change that counts in capitalism and pun intended is the quantitative increase increase of value and the interplay between the quantifiable and non-quantifiable side of, of surplus value and this entire drive of, drive for more as object the more as the the object of the capital drive this is basically what what lacan breaks marks down to in a way surplus value is more as object the idea of an object that moves that increases right. that expands that uh, there's always more to it never enough but that's not change i mean this quantitative or quantifiable turn into change is no change at all. Uh, uh, and uh, the new is also, I don't think there's anything that ultimately capitalism never produced anything new, precisely because it's it's always organizing everything that can be produced as a novelty, a new theory, a new technological innovation, a new idea of sociality, and so on and so forth, around this drive for more of the same more of value more as object to repeat myself so uh, this is not this is the it's more like an abolition of of novelty and of and of change rather than it's affirmation just because everything changes around us doesn't mean in the end that uh, the framework itself ever changes the drive of capital remains fixated at its surplus object. And this is where resistance also comes in. You know, right. I think resistance in Freud means precisely the resilience, the perseverance, the reproduction of the existing organization of libidinal economy. In this right. Case,
0: not Compulsion, Europe. et cetera. Yeah.
1: Compulsion would be one aspect, uh, right, right. one aspect of uh, of this resistance. Yeah, that you basically have reproduction of the same conditions of enjoyment or right. conditions of production. If, if we talk about social production, and again, you know, no no novelty, no change. Every potentially subversive innovation gets immediately neutralized in its transformative potential. This is kind of the mature Freud, where resistance has absolutely nothing to do with uh, with this kind of you know heroic organized right. resistance against the system. It's like and-
2: resistance to change, perhaps. If, would that be a yeah, good yeah, way yeah, to yeah,
1: characterize exactly. it? Exactly. So Freud says it. Freud says it very explicitly. I mean, in the, right. I think it's his uh, writing on resistance uh, against psychoanalysis, where he talks about how he's being rejected by medicine because psychoanalysis is too speculative it's uh, getting rejected by psychoanal- by philosophers because uh, it's too clinical or whatever you know so it doesn't fit it doesn't fit in anywhere and then he talks he talks about other forms of of resistance Epis- so we have three main expressions of resistance i guess the epistemic resistance so you know like uh, when knowledge and our understanding of scientificity or of true knowledge is basically too rigid, too constraining to allow something like a plurality of the forms of knowledge. You know, like for instance, the vulgar empiricism or Mm -hmm. vulgar positivism is a form of, you know, an a priori resistance. This resistance has been there before Freud invented psychoanalysis. So right. you know, so basically it's something that underpins and sustains the hegemonic regime of, of knowledge, and the you know this kind of uh, successful integration of psychoanalysis into capitalist productivity. It's conformism with uh, with mm-hmm. uh, the uh, uh, production of surplus value. Right. An to produce, in the last instance, something that counts as surplus value. Then there would be there would be social resistance, of course, uh, like forms of social conservatism, uh, religion, and so on and so forth. Also, certain conservatism in philosophy. You know, when it comes, you know, to the understanding of consciousness, for instance, or the structure of human subjectivity as centralized around the conscience instance and uh, and so forth. So the unconscious has absolutely no no space here and also not this Freudian idea that subjectivity is damaged, that subjectivity results from a certain constitutive trauma or damage Mm -hmm. or accident and suffering. And then, of course, libidinal. Libidinal, yeah. The libidinal aspect or affective, if you want. But again, that's that's mature, mature Freud. It's interesting, though, that Freud began, like in his, uh, you know, still 1890s work, he talked about neuropsychosis of defense. We kind of have this other idea of illness, again, in quotation marks, because psychoanalysis doesn't have a normative idea of health, as a way of... Resisting the, well, the social, economic, libidinal structure that organizes my life, my existence in a consuming manner that causes suffering, that causes uh, unease, uh, right. anxiety, and so on and so forth. In a way, there's this kind of again ambivalence of the concept itself. The interesting and also the irritating part of Freud is that uh, you never get a clear answer, or you right. never get a univocal uh, univocal answer. This is good. This is bad. It's uh-huh. always you know, it's always kind of this fluctuation between two oppositions, and this is, it's the same with with the drive. Mm-hmm. Freud kind of introduced the drive in a way in his writing drives and the, their vicissitudes mm-hmm. in a way that you know that really successfully leaves undistinguished what later became Eros and the death drive. You know, you can see that the drive is the force that is somehow indifferent towards, you know, my striving for self-preservation and, uh, you know, happiness or whatever you want to call it. It goes against all the established... ethical or moral philosophical ideals you know and especially this myth that all humans pursue happiness the happiness of the drive is in strong contradiction with my fuzzy ideas about what will bring happiness into my life but later he kind of he kind of breaks as you know it's a familiar story so he breaks uh, breaks the drive into two Opposing forces, and that's that's the result of failing to work with this kind of ambivalence of emotional life, as one, one would put it, or as some would put it. The fact that the drive actually is a force, you know, pursuing a, a satisfaction, but a satisfaction that can have destructive consequences for me as a, as the one who has to carry it, right. it along the line. So, yeah, to finally come to the death drive, the death drive is the ultimate expression. This is also something that Freud says in in, uh, Analysis Terminable and Interminable when he, you know, goes through all the forms of resistance against psychoanalysis. The ultimate resistance to psychoanalysis is the death drive. And uh, why? Because it's, um, well, I mean, I guess Freud would say, it's because it wants to, you know, kind of establish this, uh, re-establish this state of, this ultimate state of homeostasis, which is death. At the same time, if drive is a constant force, the deadly, and I think one should take the expression taught death, in tort strip, death drive, seriously, it's not simply some Excess of life or whatever, it is death. It's death as a consequence of uh, the drives striving for a satisfaction that takes no account of my well-being, the deadly autonomy of the drive. This is where also I guess this idea that, that the death drive is the ultimate expression of, of resistance comes in. We could, you know, link this, link this with Lacan's claim that every drive is virtually a death drive. I think it pretty much addresses the same issue, that every drive is, uh, in a way, an expression of resistance against change, but at the same time, it can also be banned. That's the, the point of analysis. And the impossible task of uh, of analysis to bend the unbendable, or the un- the unbendable. One of the interesting paradoxes of the drive is that, uh, of course, they are constantly fixated, and when they are fixated, you know, they ex- this is why they exercise resistance to loosening the ties with the libidinally invested uh, invested objects. But uh, at the same time, Freud also says that drives can change objects, like um, there is no over-determination what will fixate the drive. So, yeah. And also, there are different vicissitudes or destinies of the drive, which, well, some are more fortunate, some are less fortunate. Definitely a less fortunate one is, uh, uh, is repression, a more fortunate one would be sublimation. Because sublimation is, I think where freud kind of um, also envisages something like working with the drive embedding the drive in a certain yeah a certain order or ordering organization that sustains rather than consumes my existence or that sustains the formation of social relations rather than their dismantling like uh, like like in our contemporary Capitalism, yeah, like,
2: like lifting repression alone, will is not the solution. I guess. Well, but lifting that kind of lifting, fits with what you're saying. Yeah, but
1: but but you know, lifting lifting repression doesn't mean again doesn't mean for Freud being in a repressionless state. It means being in a different in a different vicissitude of the or destiny of the drive. And the question is, which one is it? I mean, I think repression <laughs> and sublimation. Relate to each other as two sort of opposite or two two alternatives. Maybe not as a plus and minus or you know good repression. Right. I mean bad <laughs> repression, good sublimation. But I think I think they do relate as competitors mm-hmm. uh, in a way. Okay. And then of course you have you have other you know this kind of uh, inversion from active to passive and uh, the, the turning upon. And against one's own person which would be for instance narcissism but narcissism not in this naive sense of uh, oh yeah i'm in love with myself or whatever but uh, precisely the drive is killing me that's narcissism if one would have to pack narcissism in one sentence i think this would be it the drive is killing me. <laughs> uh, um, i like that that's good so i mean in german it's Wendung gegen die eigene Person. And gegen means here both upon or toward and against. Right. Okay. So, you know, it's like kind of...
0: Like an amulet you wear I'm against a, a hex or something like
2: that.
1: <laughs> <Sorry>? <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: it's like uh, strangling. Or, right.
0: <laughs> I will just add just just really quickly to this conversation, this notion of resistance is also a resistance to working through right? It's a resistance to working through the transformations of, whether it be of subjective transformation or literally the transformations of the drive implied in the changing of destinies and the vicissitudes. And so like the resistances to working through, whether it be an analysis or, you know, whether we think of it socially, libidinally, epistemically. And so I think that in that sense, working through is a good way in which you describe it as, instead of being content with the compulsive fixation of the drives on an object to change, it's not enough merely to propose changing objects, but to propose but to effectuate taking change as the object. When change becomes the object, then there is a way in which working through is able to overcome the inertias and resistances and if you will allow for transformation to to sort of become the object. I thought that was an interesting way that that was one of your refrains not just a working through but change as object.
1: Yeah yeah exactly uh uh exactly but at the same time you know you can you can really see that uh, you know Freud is not resisting resistance he basically plays with it he embraces it. Right. He works with re- uh, resistance working through is Working through resistance, uh, ultimately, you right. know, and uh, and it's also a working with. That's also the point of transference, or and the function of transference in, in in psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis begins if we look at the early writings by Freud, you know, where he's also criticizing his mentor and collaborator Joseph Breuer, and the failed treatment of uh, Bertha Pappenheim or Anna O. Mm -hmm. You know, it's basically, he ran away from transference. When she produced the symptom of phantomic pregnancy, he basically got, you know, it was too much. It was, uh, one could say, say, you know, that uh, he felt harassed.
0: He couldn't deal with countertransference, if you will. Yeah, well,
1: but, but, you know, I mean, it it was an escape. It was an escape out of analysis. Well, out of analysis, that was not yet a psychoanalysis. Uh, but uh, escape out of treatment. Rebecca Kume has uh, has a, a well, really well pointed essay on this. You know, uh, resistance and repetition relation mm-hmm. in Freud and uh, the function, well, the constructive function of resistance in in analysis. Ultimately, you do not have analysis against without resistance against analysis, and also the well, the the, the big gamble of psychoanalysis has always been, will it Will it survive resistance against it? Cultural, the analysis resistance, the resistance of science, the yes. resistance of religion, the res- resistance of cultural morality, and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. And also the resistance that comes with its success, you know. Uh, right. When everyone thinks that uh, they have their Freud in the small finger, and yeah, then forget about the the problems that Freud is constantly struggling with.
0: I like this notion that resistance is something to be worked with and worked through. And it's, it's similar to how I was kind of bringing up earlier when I was paraphrasing your idea that for Marx and Freud, alienation too, our shared negativity, so to speak, is something not just to be overcome or abolished once and for all, but it's something that is sort of you know, constitutive of our subjectivity, and so it's something to be to be worked with and worked through, not necessarily just fantasmatically uh, dissipated with any one um, end of history, if you will, where we're all sort of liberated after the advent of communists or something, as though there was some eschatological moment, but that there is this continual tarrying with that shared negativity.
1: I think again, solidarity is is the name for affirming this shared or affirming negativity as shared and not as other people's problem. You know, it doesn't mean, you know, like uh, really being solidary with, with an emancipatory mo- movement that clearly, you know, does not, has nothing to do with my identity, I don't know, doesn't mean or doesn't have to mean appropriating this movement. I mean, okay, liberalism, liberalism has expressed quite a lot of fake solidarity with the... Uh, with various eman- emancipatory movements. Uh, we can think of, you know, LGBTQ plus uh, movement or or Black Lives Matter or, you know, uh, anti-colonial struggles. But if honest liberals would really solidarize with these movements, they would have to ultimately abolish themselves as liberals. Mm-hmm. They would have to affirm a knot of political universe- uh, universals and, and not just... Uh, not just freedom from which we actually have to get freed uh if, if you ask me because what liberalism and then of course economic liberalism so political and economic liberalism pursue as a, as a social ideal is actually a very anti-social idea of freedom freedom from constraints and then everyone is everyone wonders why phenomena like Trump pop up eventually it's The most consequent liberal, just like, you know, holding the mirror, what the the liberal drive is in the end. Freedom of speech is verbal diarrhea. Freedom of the market is, you know, social devastation. (laughs) The good social egoism of homo economicus is a raging subject of entitlement, and so on and so forth.
2: What I was starting with with my half-baked idea was that somehow maybe like resistance was at the level of the subject and repression was at the level of the symbolic or the social, and they were these sort of forces that were holding the subject on its path around the object or something like that, but I don't know if that quite works. Nevertheless, though, it does, I think, maybe point to a little bit further your discussion of like the drive as a sort of hinge point between... The individual and the social, the animal and the divine, per se. Mm-hmm. I, don't know, I thought that was an interesting way to describe the drive as kind of this. I don't know. It's almost like this liminal thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know mm-hmm. if you want to maybe discuss or want to draw that out a little bit further about how the drive sort of, I guess, is. I don't know if it's a if it's sort of a way to deal with this sort of gap or if it's, you know, maybe something else.
1: There's one thing that I always found very interesting in Freud's concept of the drive. And again, I think one doesn't need Lacan to make Freud interesting because his uh, his formulations are really sometimes so spot on. He described his concept of the drive as a limit notion, Grenzbegriff. I think... We can play with this formulation and say that it's a limit notion because it is a notion of a limit, or rather a notion of, not limit, border, border. It's actually Grenze is border. Limit would be Schranke. Sorry for a little bit of German uh, German jargonism. It's important because a border creates a difference between two territories, and at the same time, it functions as a line of connection. So it's both... A phenomenon of continuity and a phenomenon of cut. And um, what, according to Freud, the drive connects and differentiates is the psychic and the somatic, body and and mind. A border can also be something you know that doesn't have to have an outside. This is where Lacanian topology comes in. You know, it can be it can be a loop it can be a loop in matter or a loop in the body itself that sort of that sort of creates something like a phantom double of the material body which is not separated from this material body which is not some sort of immaterial mental substance or yeah. whatever
2: a uh, body but, but, without organs is what I <laughs> imagine. <yeah. laughs> not, not yeah. to distract us too much. Sorry.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. I mean, it's uh, it's uh you know the body without organs. I mean, we can we can call it a, a, a mythical body. Uh, uh, we can we can call it uh, an idea of the body, but it's still a body. It's indistinguishable from from the stupid materiality of the body that is here and now, organic. To get back to the drive as a border, the drive is a force. So it's it's a border that is that is active, that stands for a specific activity that is ongoing in the in the living living biological that we are. I guess Lacan then made this step that some don't agree with or may not agree with. The the privileged name of this activity is language, a material activity that nevertheless generates. Complications in matter, or complications in the organic. But of course, this doesn't mean that without language, the organic would be without without complications. You know, it's, uh, it's that's why I kind of like you know also philosophers like Katrin Malabou who take who who have a very speculative take on uh, contemporary bio- biological research and show that that ultimately you know we we also have a very peculiar afterlife of structural thought here or if we want to see you know as a here in this field uh, a specific notion of or specific understanding of unstable and processual structures something that Deleuze you know also tried to think with his notion of becoming I mean it's a Mm -hmm. it's a processual structure in the end but yeah no that's uh, that's that's what interests me in the concept of the drive, that it kind of stands for a specific complication in the materiality of the body, as far as this body is speaking, of course. And, and I uh, will
0: say, it's interesting that you show the continuity or the resonance, the homology, to use your term, between some of Freud's language about the drive, whether it be its destiny, its it working, its demand for work, insofar as it exerts pressure, uh, and force, but also Marx's uses of the notions of drive. I really thought that was very insightful, the way that you bring to the fore something that might get lost in a little bit in translation when we're reading. When I, I say we, uh, we who are editorial not, uh, we, right? Yeah, the editorial we who who are not necessarily reading Marx and Freud in in German. So even if we may know a little bit about Strachey's translation of Trieve as instinct with its problematic history, we may be a little bit less aware of Marx's uses different uses of the notion of drive, for example, what like the drive to accumulate is one of them, and you kind of work through that homology, and that helps to further your argument that really Marx and Freud are both themselves working through on, on a shared, let's say, pragmatic terrain.
1: Funnily enough, at least the New Left books, or later to be Verso, and uh, and the Penguin, Penguin edition of Marx's Capital actually have... Tribe translated as as drive. So okay. Marxists are way way more precise in translation than uh, than the Freudians. Right. These translations of Freud's writings into English have been made under Freud's supervision. So the yeah. fact, the fact that he tolerated instinct, either he didn't know English well enough to know the the word drive, or you know there is this kind of uh, curious expression of his tendencies towards uh, towards biology. Uh, and towards
0: Latin and Greek, which gives it an air of scientificity. Yeah
1: yeah, 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 yeah. At the same time, he could have used instinct if he would have uh, wanted to. Uh, but, you know, in his writing on drives and uh, their destinies, he's basically using the same word, trip, to describe instinct, what we would call normally instinct, as a, you know, physiological biologically conditioned uh, force and uh, uh, his notion of tribe. But, I mean, he's playing with words, you know. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, he is. Because because he's, he basically says our drive is much more peculiar because, or in the sexual field, the drive is much more peculiar because it's a constant force. It doesn't find temporary satisfaction It's not cyclical, you know, comes and goes. I'm not hungry all the time, but I I do satisfy my oral drive all the time. That's one kind of uh, uh, very peculiar moment in Freud where where he, you know, kind of dismisses this biological associations of of TRIP, which are there. And I mean, TRIP comes from botanics. Yeah. Okay. Initially, you know, it's uh, in German, treep is also like a part of the young part of the plant, you know. New...
2: Interesting. Like a sapling or something?
0: The offshoot? Yeah, yeah the uh...
1: offshoot. Exactly. The offshoot. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. And I, and I do think that Freud is very clear when he uses the German word instinct. It's, it's more about this kind of pre-programmed, if you will, sort of almost, I'm trying to think of the way I would put it. The it way he's like thinking... A
2: firmware, maybe? on. A- yeah,
0: it's, it's kind of like a pre-programming, whereas the drive is not pre-programmed. It's constitutively deviated from any sort of programming, if you will. And yeah, exactly. That's due to our helplessness, right? That's due to we're born prematurely, both biologically and linguistically, symbolically. It's those two helplessnesses that right. kind of condemn us to what Lacan might call castration or, you know, Freud might think about in terms of what the the way in which the sexual drive leans on the self-preservative drive and that contamination, that uh, that leaning on, if you will, mm-hmm. is, is sort of, it prepares us for, well, these different forms of alienation, but also the foundations for exploitation, as you point out, which I thought was really good you hitting home. The biological and symbolic sort of precociousness of our births prime us for various forms of exploitation, do you want to say, like, maybe a word about that? There's
1: this interesting acknowledgement of of this kind of ontological lack when it comes to the human subject. You know, in in Adam Smith, that's something that very very much surprised me when I uh, when I uh, started reading Smith's work because you know I was kind of expecting you know to just get the confirmations of everything that uh, new liberals have made. Out of Smith, you know, these that kind of uh, small tokens that uh, that that become a kind of uh, common knowledge. But actually, it's not common knowledge. It's just common error. <laughs> and uh, it's not this greed. Greed is not primary, or egoism is not primary. What is primary is precisely this born infants, born helpless, right. born in a state of immaturity. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolute dependency and then you know one could also say this is some sort of you know constitutive alienation of the human subject it doesn't cease throughout the life we are a relation yeah we are the exact opposite of what vulgar egotistic worldview is claiming you know and i think this is this is also the ultimate signification of aristotle's definition of human being as as a political animal is this animal is ultimately a relational animal or just a relation no substance
2: <laughs> <laughs> i think maybe the last thing i'd like to hit upon is a little bit this idea of sublimation as a satisfaction without repression and then i you know i, I grabbed the footnote from the text i don't know if we might read through that or i don't know if you have any comments on this i think it'd be also interesting maybe i don't know if we have time to talk a little bit about just sublimation broadly and maybe different conceptions between freud lacan etc because i think that'll play into it
0: if i can add to you know you and i have talked about it a little bit and And maybe Samuel has an opinion on this, or if not, we can talk more about the the quote you've you've grabbed here, and specifically this notion of sublimation is satisfaction of repression. But you know, with Deleuze and Guattari, their main pushback against this notion of sublimation is we find in Freud variously sort of this idea that the libido has to be desexualized in order to invest the social. And I'm wondering if that formulation in Freud doesn't undergo a change in Lacan where there's a kind of a different conceptualization yeah. of sublimation that isn't necessarily about what happens to the libido and its, and its investment in, you know, I mean, Freud's typical ideas are desublimation is how civilization, art, things that aren't directly invested in the satisfactions of need, but have these higher quote-unquote goals have to be desexualized in a certain way, whereas Deleuze and Guattari are like, no, sexuality is everywhere, the libido but, isn't desexualized in, in investing.
1: No, but that's not Freud's point at all. I mean, okay. if you read, for instance, Freud's uh, criticism of, of worldviews, you know, mm-hmm. in his new introductory uh, lectures, he's saying so blunt I mean it's almost too vulgar you know it's uh, it's almost too direct sexuality you know our mm. desire I mean religion is uh, basically a sublimated uh, version of our desire for paternal love or you know it's you basically blush. You want it to be more more sophisticated, you know. How about, you know, for some sadistic authority, you know, to, to bring some spice in or you know, joke aside. What I want to say is basically he detects desire, he detects desire at the center of worldview mechanisms and conceptions of the world and reads them as dreams. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, he doesn't put it so 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 ex- explicitly out of, out in the open. But you, if you have read the interpretation of dreams and the uh, function of desire in his conception of dream as fulfillment, as a satisfaction, mm-hmm. hallucinatory satisfaction of uh, of an actually existing desire, then you basically see this, this all over his uh, critique of worldview mechanisms. And that's why he basically says that psychoanalysis shouldn't adopt construct a worldview,
0: mm-hmm. because
1: its function is not to satisfy desire. Its its function is to transform it. And uh, this definition of sublimation, as that Lacan makes, as satisfaction without repression, means precisely that it's targeting it's targeting metamorphosis overall metamorphosis in the mechanism of of satisfaction. This metamorphosis is changing desire, changing the workings of desire and the consequences that it has on my psychosomatic nexus and the organization of of life, of everyday life, you know, the way I function in the world, to put it banal. And uh, I, I very much like this remark that Lacan makes that it's a change from, no, it's a shift from the changing of object to the change of the object in itself. Mm -hmm. I hope that, you know, you don't find it too misplaced to read this change of object in itself, not simply as, you know, this metonymic issue, you know, because that's changing objects. The change of object in itself means precisely change as object. But again, it doesn't bring us, it doesn't bring us that far because there are changes and changes to repeat myself, you know, I mean, change as object. We find this in capitalism all over, but it's again, it's this quantitative change or increase in value or economic growth, whatever. This is all change as object, but uh, the way capitalism, you know, flattens it into its notion of profit. Whereas, uh, yeah, this other part of of change would be social change, change as a social, change as a social a social effect or a social, yeah, a social object. Whereas, yeah, again, this issue of antisociality sociality has been kind of uh, I've been obsessing about it in the past uh, couple of years. So I mean, this economic notion of change, quite change in value or increase of value. Is an anti-social notion of change, right? And we can have then again, you know, sorry for repeating myself. All these everyday changes and uh, bigger or smaller revolutions in our whatever technology, knowledge, and so on and so forth, which are ultimately no changes at all because they do not change
2: anything
0: about the system on yeah. the
1: level on the level of the framework. Would this it be a system, distinction between uh, I mean,
2: like imaginary and real here, or am I like change
0: the, the... Well, I mean,
1: well, I mean, imaginary. We can go back again to uh, to the to Freud's critique of worldviews. I mean, the worldviews in the end are providing some sort of imaginary fixation or um, right. imaginary stabilization and predictability of of reality. Lacan would say they make. Functioning reality out of a dysfunctional real.
0: They fill in the gaps and the negativity. Yeah, they fill in the gaps. Exactly. Like, like, like you talk about with myths. Myths right. are are these ways of filling in these these gaps. They're both too much They're, and too little.
2: Even yeah. I think continuity editing in film, like you don't really notice the cuts, right? But because you're yeah, yeah.
0: you're like,
2: habituated in you've learned to read, you've learned to the cuts are not legible to you because you're sort of habituated in it. But anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah exactly. I think it's a similar way to like it smooths over things. So it, it appears as this nice, beautiful sphere, but if you really investigate it, it's kind of this motley beast. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so maybe it's coined as yeah. To make change into the libidinally invested object is also to, I mean, again, to, t- to, to turn to d and I like how Guattari is always thinking about these transitory formations or these mm-hmm. transitory uh, subject groups that don't necessarily try to erect themselves as in a totalitarian way as though to immortalize themselves. Because there's something about what you're describing when capitalism brings about change and merely quantitative change, it's also erecting itself as the immobile motor capital as the, as the immortality of, of the system. And it's, so in that sense, change has not reached, as you said, the level of the framework of the systemic level, wherein capital itself would be threatened with change or with transitoriness with, you know, these injections of, of death drive, as they put it, you know, where it's, it's, I think this is part of, what maybe the kernel of truth and acceleration is accelerationism, if it has one, is about is is sort of speak pushing capital or capitalism to the point where it it takes on the speed of light, inertia, whatever to affect its own change. But then again, that might be sometimes, you know, with your critique of accelerationism earlier in the book or elsewhere, you can just imagine that there might be something else to work through or this different way of working through than merely about acceleration and uh but, i think that but you know,
1: but, yeah. you know I, think, I i think this is it works for me as a metaphorical language okay uh, but that's that's also why 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 i'm highly skeptical uh mm-hmm. Highly mm-hmm. Skeptical towards accelerationism which i mean in the end i think i think we kind of over blew it as a real issue i think I mean, I only take it uh, seriously when uh, I mean, seriously, like something that I seriously need, need to engage with when when my students because it's very popular in the, in art schools. Or OK, I, I, OK. Maybe it's no longer the case. I haven't I haven't <laughs> any acceleration it's in a while now, but uh, it definitely was popular for a while. In cultural studies and, and art context, that's why I, I need to engage with it critically. But sure. uh, again, I think I think it's a it's a kind of a very graspable, maybe even likable metaphor. But um, I think it overlooks two things. One is capitalism has always been also kind of self-regulatory, but not in the manner you know, vulgar economists are talking right. about oh yeah the market will take care of everything right. and yeah. no but, but you know to, there have always been emergency breaks you know to make sure that exploitation remains tolerable, that it's not too obvious or that it's not too painful that it's not causing too much outrage the function of social democracy and of liberalism that's why mm-hmm. like the, these two are the, the political options that I that I dislike the most because they're traitors mm. because they participate precisely precisely in this self-regulatory self-regulatory right this corrective self-corrective feature like we are still not correcting anything just to to make sure that i'm not uh, advocating liberal and liberal superstitions about some self-corrective markets and so on but uh again to, to kind of keep exploitation somewhere where it's still profitable but not too obviously obviously harming and we're talking about the white wet west here because for everyone else there is no correction we can just kill them this has been the stance of of capitalism uh, all along that's one thing that 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 i think talks against accelerationism the other one is that this is a system of organized antisociality and uh, in the end this means that Systemic resistance can manifest also so in a way in which it takes all of us hostage and is pushing us into a global c- catastrophe, like an environmental breakdown. An environmental breakdown here means, uh, means the catastrophic change of the extra-cultural conditions of possibility of culture, the environmental conditions which favor something like civilization. So the other aspect is a bit in contradiction with the first one. The, the self, you know, like keeping exploitation at a handbrake. The other one is overt amok, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the system that 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 runs amok. And I think this is this is the other the other side of capitalism, which we are seeing emerge in recent years more and more. So, I'm a skeptic when it comes to green capitalism. (laughs) Right. You know, it's kind of, well, this could be one (laughs) self-corrective, in quotation mark, aspect. But uh, (laughs) I think this kind of sinister and even dystopian vision of capitalism is also proved to be found in in Marx's Capital volumes. Right. Already, if we take the idea of capital as drive seriously and... Mm -hmm. uh, Read it together with Freud, we basically get this potential catastrophic, global catastrophic scenario.
0: The way that the phrase that kept coming up in my head, thinking about your work Mm -hmm. that kept circulating, was you talk about the parasitism of virtual infinity on finitude. And you're talking about the drive for surplus value, surplus uh, enjoyment, the excessive nature of the drive whereby capitalism becomes a culture of a death drive, whereby, like a parasite, it very much threatens any conditions of possibility and sustainability that would allow it to live on, right? Which is why you bring up ecological catastrophe, and which is kind of where, obviously, we're headed for. Not to be too bleak, (laughs) listeners, but that's...
1: But, you know, I mean, in in this entire history of attempts to, to naturalize capitalism you know, in like Marx has been mocking, you know, the the bourgeois economists that they see the institutions of capitalism as, you know, the most in sync with human nature and so on and so forth. The most dangerous one is precisely contemporary environmental crisis because, uh, you know, it's not that capitalism is something natural. Of course, it's not. But if it brings about the breakdown, the dismantling of, again, extracultural, environmental conditions of culture, it fully actualizes itself as an environmental catastrophe. It basically yeah. becomes indistinguishable from an environmental catastrophe that it, of course, generated itself as its ultimate surplus product.
2: Um, <laughs> that's oh, good. That's good. That's very good. <laughs> wow.
0: I will say uh Coop, you can I definitely don't want to cut you off last words, but if we if we do want to uh if you wanna have a thought and then maybe Samo can uh, can sort of tell us what he's working on, thinking, working through at, at the moment <laughs> and for the future. <laughs> but I wanna I wanna give you a chance, Coop.
2: Please, Samo, go ahead and let us know what you're uh what you're working on future wise. And I don't wanna open up another can of worms because I know okay. you're uh, looking uh, to I'm...
1: go. Right now, I'm more focusing on teaching. Yeah, giving uh, on the one hand like classes that, uh, that are re- yeah, kind of engaging with the ongoing actuality of psychoanalysis for well, not only political theory, also for for aesthetic uh, discussions in the present. And um, otherwise, I mean. Like I said, I'm, I'm a little bit obsessed with this topic of anti-sociality or a capitalist anti-sociality. Capitalism as a, as an anti-social system. So perhaps, uh, perhaps I um, I'll kind of try to organize my thoughts in another booklet. But um, I'm not sure about the, about that yet. I did produce some articles in the past two years that go into this direction, but. Where the the ship goes, time will show. Is
0: right. <laughs> or it will, yeah, or
1: it will or it will sink somewhere on the way.
0: I think that's it's great. I I know that we we merely scratched the surface, but I did like that we were able to delve into resistance working through the drive, and you know maybe we left off on a, a pessimistic note, but I mean I do think that there are if we kind of think back to one of the the refrains today which i feel is in your book if not in the term you spoke of but you're speaking of solidarity in terms of for example shared negativity is one of the ways you you put it i think that that's part of the bright side uh we'll <laughs> leave the the listeners with just to think about how that i mean that shared negativity is is also that that sharing as you said the relationality of our of our constitutive helplessness and so we have to think about how that can be paradoxically empowering perhaps
1: yeah yeah exactly and uh i mean we know from lacan specifically that uh, if we say that we have nothing in common this can also mean quite a, to have in common quite a lot speaking about castration negativity and yes uh, and so on and so forth i mean this is, this nothing has an organizing function in uh in psychoanalysis or in psychoanalytic conception of of subjectivity and that's i guess uh what i'm after talking about shared negativity mm-hmm. negativity connects <laughs> yes
0: i mean i like it it's uh you know i'm, I'm thinking again as Krip said not to open a can of words i was thinking of um your elaboration of working through in these different contexts and how that's kind of shared with Marx and Freud even if it's a specific concept in Freud you see it in Marx in terms of social transformations as well i'm thinking of working through in terms of uh the desiring machines they break down but they break through so uh, you know it's a yeah, it's, they're dysfunctional thought.
1: they're dysfunctional and that's that's also what what i found always uh, interesting in uh, in Deleuze and Guattari's well, misreading of Freud, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I guess, because, because basically what they claim to be claiming themselves is actually very Freudian. Yes, it is. Uh, it's also quite clear that they're that they're not talking about some um, you know authentic Freud, but more about what Freud has become in uh, right. Uh, in various cultural contexts and how it has been used and misused for uh, right. very anti-Freudian anti purposes. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the machine has has always had for me this meaning of discourse or or structure. You know. But so when I read anti-Oedipus, it was really about ah, okay, this is kind of a, a structuralism that places much more accent on the instability Mm -hmm. rather than, you know, this kind of permutational machinic, you know, where also, you know, we can hear something machinic uh, in terms of automatism, you know, Mm -hmm. or functional automatism, perpetuum mobile or whatever, uh, you know, also in, in, in... Classical structuralism, but again, I think it's again this sort of uh, vulgarized version or vulgar stereotype of structuralism (laughs) that never existed. They were all kind of you know talking about dysfunctioning and uh, unstable orders. It's funny because I was
2: I think your discussion of death drive was making me think about desiring production, just because the demand for work, the demand to produce desire. I don't know. That's Kind of brought it in and was sharper relief for me, I guess. Yeah, strangely enough. The demand right? So the constant yeah. demand for work. And yeah, but
0: you
1: mean. know, this is again, this is again something that Freud says himself: the drive is a demand. I mean, can be broken down to a demand for work.
2: Yes, I mean, this yeah. is why I think that there's to-
1: all the uh, mental and physical efforts in some pointless satisfaction. I mean, it's right. uh, it's really it really hits the core of. uh, uh what is the success story of capitalism to make everything useless?
0: It gives us a lot of food for thought to to keep working through. And <laughs> you know, and so Samuel, we, we really appreciate your time spending with us and you know talking about your book, talking about your work, talking about sort of the broader context of Marx and Freud. It's obviously you know something that I think it's going to, it's very serendipitous, as we said, that it coincides with a lot of the investigations we've been doing. And so furthering our interests too, I already thank you for that, but then giving us your time to sort of keep us on this, this journey of, of transforming our, our ways of thinking and, and being and feeling, et cetera. Right. You know, I don't want to wrap this all in a bow, but I just, I really appreciate you you coming and speaking with us today.
1: Thank you so much. It was really sincerely great pleasure. And uh, yeah, it was a great joy to, uh, to be here in this context and uh, talk, talk to you guys.
0: We'll be in touch. I think, uh, Coop, do you think this episode will be next released week. next week? It so, should be out next week, yeah. So next weekend, we'll be in touch. We'll let you know when the episode airs so you can um, force all of your, uh, <laughs> your friends and students to, to listen to it. But until then, enjoy the, the rest of your weekend. We're going to stay around yeah. just for a moment just to talk shop. But uh, I can't thank you enough for being here today. Well, thank
2: you again. Thanks so much, Samo. And that will wrap up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happier with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. The very
0: rules of evil, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is to <laughs> The whole state of things pure violence without a This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. With nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in block blockwork orange.